Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, Joshua chapters 13 and 14. Well, as we continue uh, Joshua 13 today, the central feature for us to keep in mind is that the Lord has ordered Joshua to divide and distribute the land of Canaan among the tribes of Israel. And this dividing comes at a somewhat unexpected time because even with the resounding military victories of Joshua and Israel over the southern and then the northern coalition armies of the various kings of Canaan, virtually the entire coastline of the land of Canaan is still in enemy hands. The job of conquering Canaan is unfinished. There's much left to be done. So before we reread a portion of Joshua 13, I think the God principle that I would like to reiterate as the one that Joshua was, was learning and that as believers we need to constantly keep in mind is that perfect circumstances are never necessary to be obedient. Nor are they necessary to move forward in God's work. Therefore, it's rare that we will fully complete a task to the level it ought to. Yet, by no means is this ever an excuse for us to hesitate or procrastinate. We do what we can with what we have when we can. Canaan was not fully taken but it was sufficiently under control so as to allow allotment of the land to the tribes. There was no reason to wait any longer. So let's reread from Joshua uh, 13, verse 8 to the end. Joshua 13, verse 8, which is on page 256 of the Complete Jewish Bible. With the half-tribe of Manasseh and the Reubenites and the Gadites receiving their inheritance, which Moshe had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, just as Moses, the servant of Adonai, had given them, from Aruer on the edge of the Arnon Valley, the city in the middle of the valley, all the plateau between Medvah and Debon and all the cities of Sahon, king of the Amorai, who ruled in Hishbon to the border with the people of Ammon, and Gilead, the territory of the Geshurites and the Machites, all of Mount Hermon, all of Bashan as far as Salcha, that is all the kingdom of Og and the Bashan who ruled in Ashtaroth and Edrai. Og was one of those remaining from the Rephaim whom Moses defeated and expelled. However, the people of Israel expelled neither the Geshurites nor the Machites with the consequence that Geshur and Machites have lived among Israel to this day. Now, only to the tribe of Levi did Moses give no inheritance because the offerings made by fire for Adonai, the God of Israel, are his inheritance, as Adonai had said to Moses. Moses gave land to the tribe of the descendants of Reuben by clans. 
Their territory included the Aruer over the on the edge of the Arnon Valley, the city in the middle of the valley, all the plateau near Medva, Heshbon, and its villages on the plateau, Tibon, Bamot Baal, Beit Baal, Moon, Yahatz, Kedmot, Mefat, Kiryat, Atayim, Sivma, Seret, Shachar, at the top of the valley, Beit Pur, on the slopes of Pisgah, Beit Yeshmot, on the city, all the cities of the plateau, all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon. Now Mo- Moses defeated him, along with the chiefs of Midian, along with Avi, Rechem, Sur, Hur, and Reva, the princes of Sihon who lived in the land. Along with the others, the people of Israel killed with the sword. They also struck down Bilam, the son of Dor, who practiced divination. And the Jordan formed the border for the descendants of Reuben. This was the inheritance of the descendants of Reuben by clans with its cities and villages. Moses gave land to the tribe of Gad, to the descendants of Gad by clans. And their territory included Yatzer, all the cities of Gilead, half the land of the people of Ammon, as far as Aruer, fronting Rabbah. That is, from Heshbon to Ramot, Mitzpah, and to Betonim, and from Machanaim to the border of Libir. Now, while in the valley, it included Beit Haram, Beit Nimrah, Sukkot, and Saphon. In other words, the rest of the kingdom of Sahon, king of Heshbon, with the Jordan to the far end of Lake Kinneret as its border, their territory extended eastward. This is the inheritance of the descendants of Gad by clans with its cities and villages. And Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. For, uh, it was for the half-tribe of the descendants of Manasseh by clans. Their territory included Machanaim and all of Bashan, that is, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, all the villages of Yair and Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead, and Ashtaroth and Edrei, the cities of, king, of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All this was for the descendants of Machir, the son of Manasseh, or rather for half of the descendants of Machir by clans. These are the inheritances which Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan and Jericho, eastward. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. Adonai, the God of Israel, is their inheritance, as he told them. Okay, this is another one of those places in the Bible where it would be much better if the chapter markers were just left out. Okay, Starting at about chapter 11 and on through 19... It's one continuous story of how and when the land of Canaan was divided up and given to each Israelite tribe. Now, verses 8 to 13 speak of the land on um, the other side of the Jordan, to the east. All right, this is the area that... Oh, there we go. The scholars dubbed the Transjordan, trans across, across the Jordan. It is the other area that Israel would occupy. And it is outside of the promised land. Now, the point of these verses is to demonstrate that Joshua wasn't any more of a failure 
than was Moses when it comes to conquering the land fully. The general boundaries of the so-called two and a half tribes of Israel are called out in these passages, making it abundantly clear that it was Moses who was in charge and it was he, Moses, who gave the land to Reuben, Gad, and half of the clans who made up the tribe of Manasseh. And that two foreign nations consisting of people called the Geshurites and the Maachites were not driven out of the two and a half tribes territorial area and instead were left to live nearby, in some cases even among Israel. So even Moses, God's own mediator, and a man so highly venerated by his people, didn't fully succeed. Therefore, no one should hold Joshua to a higher standard. Nor should Joshua be seen as less than an excellent leader because he didn't drive out the Canaanites from the west side of the Jordan. The other point of these passages is to show that Moses divided the territory in the Transjordan before it was completely conquered. So there's no reason that Joshua shouldn't do the same on the opposite side of the river. And then in verse 14, the Levites are mentioned because they are not counted among either the two and a half tribes that will occupy the, uh, the east bank of the Jordan or the nine and a half tribes that would occupy the west bank. In fact, shortly we're going to encounter a rather lengthy explanation of just why the Levites were left out of the count of the Israelite tribes. Now, there is a good and practical reason why this review of the makeup of the Israelite tribes, the Israelite nation, and the special status of the Levites suddenly pops up at this point in Joshua. Now, at some point, every generation begins to ponder our current state of affairs and ask questions about certain things, why certain things are as they are within our society and culture. Why does one group, if you were Israel then, why does one tribe, clan, family, seem to have an inherent advantage or disadvantage when compared to the others. Isn't there something we ought to do to make things more fair? Is it time to make a change? Is it time to set aside traditions of the past for a new future? When left to our own devices, we often make changes that never quite pan out how we envisioned them. And usually it's near to impossible to reverse the effects and go back to how it used to be. The Lord God wanted to make it very clear that it was he who made the decision on the treatment of the Levites and on the divvying up of the land of Canaan. The tribal makeup of Israel and more was under his control. And none of this was to be tampered with. Now verse 14 says that the Levites would, reci- would receive no land as their inheritance, and this was God's firm position on the subject. But instead of land, Levi would receive, it says, the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Now this has been stated in an, a roundabout way in, in earlier books 
of Torah, but it's a little more clear now as to what exactly God's intention was concerning what Levi was to receive. And we have to recollect our understanding of holy property to get the picture of just what this is getting at. Okay. Offerings made to God at the tabernacle, later the temple, were given the general name of Ishishay. And this referred specifically to burnt offerings, but also generally to all sacrificial offerings devoted to the Lord by whatever means. Now, to the Hebrews, it meant whatever had been set apart as holy property for God. Therefore, that would include vow offerings. And especially as pertained to this moment in Israelite history, spoils of holy war. In other words, the Levites were entitled to the same holy property that the other Israelite tribes were prohibited under pain of death from taking. Therefore, except for the dwelling places of the Canaanite people that were destroyed by Joshua's army, and except for the Canaanite people themselves that were killed, generally speaking, everything else that was designated as holy property taken as God's portion from the spoils of war went to the Levites for their use. Now, that system was ordered back in Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 10.9, it says, This is why Levi has no share or inheritance with his brothers. Adonai is his inheritance, and Adonai, your God, has said it to him. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that a little later in our lesson. So, up to now, the general area of the Transjordan was described as being given to the two and a half tribes of Israel. This long section here on the east side of the Jordan River. But with verse 15, we get more exacting boundaries associated with each of the two and a half tribes separately. The country between the Arnon River to the south and Jabot north of it was divided between uh, Reuben and Gad. Reuben and Gad right here. Okay. It was bounded in the south by Moab and on the eastern side by Ammon. Okay. The southernmost district was given to Reuben and it extended from the Arnon River to the point of connection to the inlet right, where the Jordan River meets the Dead Sea. Right in here. Now Gad's territory followed along the eastern banks of the Jordan River right, and then eastwards from there. It reached as far north right here as the Sea of Kinneret or as we better know it today, the Sea of Galilee. Okay. North of Gad's territory lay this region, big region, set apart for the tribe of Manasseh or better, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, I know this can get a little confusing, but it needn't be. Manasseh was a very large tribe. Okay. When Moses was still leading Israel, and they were yet to cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land, 
And so they were still operating in the Transjordan. Many of the clans that made up the tribe of Manisha liked what they saw and they didn't want to go any further. But an approximately equal amount of the other clans of Manisha wanted to continue on. Now, this was a very serious complication. Right? And it easily could have meant intertribal civil warfare right? and, and blood killings within the tribe of Manisha. With those who wished to stay in the Transjordan versus those who wanted to move on. So it was decided that those who wanted to stay on the eastern side could and those that wanted to move on could. Each would keep their tribal affiliation and tribal identity. Part of Manasseh didn't become a new and separate tribe. Yet, as was inevitable, eventually there were tremendous power struggles um, and calls for secession and even some serious battles between East Manasseh and West Manasseh. And a good map shows that the two Manesha territories weren't even contiguous. They were separated. Right? Um, so the table was set for some real and ongoing political problems within the Manesha tribe. Thus we get this designation of the half-tribe of Manesha, of which obviously there were two. Half here, half here. Now a good question to ask right about now might be, why we get all this stuff about the two and a half tribes getting their land in the Transjordan since this seems to be but repeating things that we read all the way back in Deuteronomy about the same event that had happened several years earlier. I mean, it reads as though this distribution of the land to the east of the Jordan was a current event. Well, what's happening is that Moses designated that land as set apart for the two and a half tribes, but there was a caveat placed on it. And the deal was that these two and a half tribes had to supply troops to fight alongside the remaining nine and a half tribes as they went about conquering the land of Canaan. And further, Joshua would decide when the soldiers of Reuben, Gad, and uh, some of the clans of Manasseh had fulfilled their duty to their brethren. This now, in Joshua, was that time. The major battles for the south and the north of Canaan had been fought and won, and the two and a half tribes did as they said they'd do. Therefore, Joshua, under the direction of Jehovah, is ready to declare that the eastern lands are officially and fully given to Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, and they have no further duty to the nine and a half tribes who have now moved into the promised land. So with that, let's move in to Joshua chapter 14. Open your Bibles again to Joshua chapter 14. It's a little short chapter on page 257 of the complete Jewish Bible. These are the inheritances which the people of Israel took in the land of Canaan with Eleazar the Cohen, the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the ancestral clans of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed to them by lot for them to inherit as Adonai ordered through Moses for the nine tribes and the half-tribe. 
Moses had already given the inheritance, uh, inheritances to the two tribes and the half-tribe beyond the Jordan. And to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. The descendants of Joseph constituted two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they gave no portion to the land of the Levites except cities to live in with the open land surrounding them for their livestock and crops. As Adonai had ordered Moses, so the people of Israel did. They divided the land. The descendants of Judah approached Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Yephune, the Kenizi, said to him, You know what Adonai told Moses, the man of God, about me and you and Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of Adonai sent me from Kadesh Barnea to reconnoiter the land, and I brought back to him an honest report. My brothers who went up with me discouraged the people, but I followed Adonai my God completely. On that day, Moses swore, surely the land where your foot has been will be the inheritance for you and your descendants forever, because you have followed Adonai my God completely. Now look, Adonai has kept me alive these 45 years, as he said he would, from the time Adonai said this to Moses when Israel was going through the desert. Today, I'm 85 years old, but I'm as strong today as on the day Moses sent me. I'm as strong now as I was then, whether for war or simply for going here and there. Therefore, give me this hill, the one Adonai spoke about on that day. For on that day, you heard how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps Adonai will be with me, and I will drive them away, as Adonai said. So Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron, gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Yephuni, as his inheritance. So Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Yephuni, the Kenizi, as it is to this day. Because he followed Adonai, the God of Israel, completely. Hebron was formerly called Kiryat Arba. This Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Well, the first words of the first verse in chapter 14 show us that the subject is switching from settling the Transjordan to occupying the land of Canaan. And by definition, the main character now switches from Moses, who led the assault of the Eastern Territory, to Joshua, who led the assault on the Western Territory, Canaan. Well, suddenly, after not hearing anything about him for some time, the name of Eleazar, son of Aaron, who was the current high priest of Israel, reappears. And this reappearance is in the context of the event of distributing the land of Canaan among the nine and a half tribes who have yet to receive their own territories. Now we see that this allotment of land was a joint effort of Israelite leadership with Joshua, who was the secular leader of Israel, Eleazar, who was the spiritual leader of Israel, and the ten tribal princes, one of for each of the ten tribes that would be the recipients of land. Now I say ten princes, tribal leaders, even though we speak of nine and a half tribes, because we have nine full tribes and about half of the clans 
that formed the 10th tribe, Manesha receiving land in the West. I mean, look, we can speak of half of a tribe, but you can't have half of a prince. Okay, so there were 10 princes present for this ceremony. Anyway, the method for land distribution was by means of lots. Now, don't think that the presence of the high priest was needed for lots to be drawn. This could have been done without him. But the nature of dividing the land was divine. So it was appropriate that Eleazar, the high priest, would have a role. Now, truth be known, no one really knows for sure what the procedure for drawing or using lots amounted to. Although there are traditions that suggest how it went and that it was that there were two jars that contained polished stones used as the lots that were randomly selected. The other thing that we should take note of is that there were two separate occasions when lots were used to divide this same land. The first was when Moses directed back in Moab and then there was this one with Joshua leading the way. So why were lots employed two times to deal with the same land transaction? Now, though it's not directly stated, it becomes fairly clear that the first choosing of the lots with Moses dealt with the respective juxtaposition, the general location of each tribal territory within the land. In other words, who'd get land by the Jordan River? Who by the Mediterranean Sea? Who would get desert country? Who would get lush hills? So on. What tribe would bump up against another tribe? But what was not dealt with was the size of the territory. The exact boundaries would be, ter- would be determined by headcount. Okay? With the larger tribes getting more territory than the smaller tribes because they needed it. And as we're going to find out in upcoming chapters, this didn't go at all smoothly. All right? And some allotments had to be made over the years, had, uh, some adjustments rather, and the allotments had to be made over the years in both size of specific tribal territories, and even in their locations. Now, when things are repeated in the Bible, it's because nuances are being added. More and uh, often subtle bits of information are being provided, and in some cases, history is being retold so that the current and future generations can understand the rationale behind certain decisions. That is the case beginning in verse 2 when yet again we're told that Moses divided the land among the two and a half tribes that the Levites didn't get any land inheritance and then a reminder that the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh together represented the single tribe of Joseph. This was explained so that the current batch of Hebrews looked back to the early tribal lists of Israel found in Torah and saw the name of Joseph, but no tribe of Ephraim or Manasseh. And then later they saw Ephraim and Manasseh, but no tribe of Joseph. By going over this again, they'd understand how this transition occurred 
and that it was a God-ordained event all the way. Now, let me remind you how it was that Joseph came to be two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, neither of which went by his name. Back in Genesis 48, we get the story of the patriarch Jacob in Egypt on the verge of death. And so he calls his favorite son and the vizier of Egypt, Joseph, to his bedside. Joseph brought his two Egyptian-born sons, born to Joseph's Egyptian wife, with him. They were Ephraim and Manasseh. And in a customary Hebrew blessing, done in a very uncustomary way, Jacob asked Joseph to bring his two young sons forward. And then Jacob made one of the most amazing and awesome prophetic pronouncements that would affect the history of God's plan of redemption right up until God's kingdom is established on earth with Yeshua at its head. In what I call the cross-handed blessing, Jacob laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, the younger of his two grandsons, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. And he blessed these two children by making them his own sons. Jacob literally and officially, not symbolically, adopted Ephraim and Manasseh away from Joseph. He even told Joseph that his future children could be his. Now, this must have staggered and upset Joseph to no end. For not only had his father Jacob taken his own sons from him, but he had also given the greater blessing to the second-born son and the lesser blessing um, uh, to the first. But all that was by, by all that was customary and traditional and right in the eyes of any Hebrew or Middle Easterner, Jacob had broken all the rules. But by those same traditions, once a blessing is given, it's irreversible for any reason. So with this adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh, suddenly Jacob has 14 sons, not 12. For a time, there were 14 tribes of Israel. Not twelve. However, before Israel left Egypt, the tribal name of Joseph was dropped. And it was replaced with two tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh. Now get the picture. The tribe of Joseph split into two. With one of them being Ephraim, the other Manasseh. One represents one line of Joseph. One represents another line of Joseph. But removing the tribal name of Joseph still left them with 13 tribes of Israel. Later on, out in the wilderness, God would adopt the tribe of Levi away from the nation of Jacob, the nation of Israel. And thus, now we're back to 12 tribes. Plus Levi. But Levi was no longer, we're told, to be counted as among his brethren. 
while Levi's identity was Hebrew, they would not be counted any longer as a tribe of Israel because they were separated out for duty as God's personal servants. They would serve God as his priests and those who cared for his sanctuary. Thus, since the Levites were no longer a tribe of Israel, they had no right to inherit any part of the promised land. So we find God explaining that instead of giving land as Levi's inheritance, he is Levi's inheritance. Further, as we covered one chapter back, the Lord would share his personal, some of his personal property, personal holy property with them. A unique privilege that would never be afforded to any of the other 12 tribes. However, the Levites had to live somewhere, so they were to be given cities within each of the 12 tribal territories, as well as some pasture land outside of each city, so they could have a place to graze livestock. So we get this mysterious and quite profound lesson from what God ordained for his servants, his priests, the tribe of Levi. First, Levi was to receive little to no earthly, physical inheritance. Instead, theirs was to be a spiritual inheritance. As not only a gift from God, but their inheritance was God. Second, whatever God's servants did have on this earth, was to be provided for them out of the other tribes' portions. God's priests and sanctuary workers are to be provided for by those who are God's people and his worshipers. And the third principle, the priests and servants of God, the Levites, were to have as little equity, as little hold on this world as is possible for a physical being. Of course, they needed clothing, homes, food, medical care, all the other basics of life that any other human needs for survival. It wasn't meant that they be poverty-stricken, but it was also not meant for the Levites to be landowners, nor businessmen, nor among the more well-to-do of that community. Now, what does this say to us in the 21st century when it is made abundantly clear in the New Testament that as disciples of Yeshua, as believers in the God of Israel, that we, you, are his new priesthood. See, here are the three principles that we as God's spiritual priests are to follow in our lifestyles as a result of our position that Jesus is one for us with his blood. This is the mindset about our position before God and in relationship with this world that we're to adopt. We're to see our inheritance as God himself and thus not strive to build up treasures that moth and rust doth corrupt, they say, at the cost of our relationship with the Lord. God's ministers are to be provided for by whom by those to whom they minister 
Naturally, the level of provision varies. If there is a very small flock that requires little of the minister's time, then it's that minister's duty to have a trade or a craft to offset at least some of his cost of living. Thus, we see the priests and the Levites that do not work full time at the temple have jobs. They have trades and so forth to, to support themselves and their families. But at the same time, God's ministers are not to seek to be provided for at a level better than the flock at large. They're not to achieve economic advantage by being a servant of God. At some point, the reasonable need for receiving a decent living and thus being paid for carrying the gospel to others can turn into selling the gospel for profit. A passion and a duty can suddenly become no more than a profession. I don't need to give you examples of, of this. I'm sure you can all think of them. Well, the first tribe on the west side of the Jordan to receive their inheritance was Judah. And verse 8 begins the story of just how it was that it happened this way. The camp of Israel was still located in Gilgal. And some of the clan leaders of the tribe of Judah approached Joshua. Specifically, it was the clan of Caleb, Caleb, who sought to receive their land inheritance now. So in rather typical Middle Eastern fashion, Caleb reminds Joshua of what happened many years earlier out in the wilderness when Moses put together a scouting party of twelve to go and reconnoiter the land of Canaan. And Caleb and the man he is now beseeching to give him land, Joshua, were two among those twelve. And of course the story was that Israel was near the area of Kadesh Barnea. And Kadesh Barnea is in the southernmost desert region of Canaan. When Moses, at God's direction, decided it was time that they make their move towards the land of Canaan. But the scouting party that was sent returned with bad news. The enemy was too well fortified. And there were fierce warriors called the Anakim, giants, who were sure to annihilate Israel. Therefore, Israel should not attack Canaan. Well, Caleb and Joshua disagreed. Not necessarily with the assessment, but with the conclusion. Okay. They agreed that the challenge was great and dangerous, but that if God was with them, victory would be theirs. The majority won out, unfortunately, and Israel was turned back into the desert to wander for 38 more years. Now, notice in verse 6, chapter 14, Something that's pretty easy to just read over. It says that Caleb was the son of Yefune, the Kenizzite. This is actually rather startling when we understand what it means. Caleb's biological father was Yefune of the tribe of Judah, but Yefune died. And apparently, Caleb's mother remarried a fellow named Kenaz. Hence the word 
Kenazites. Okay. So Kenaz became Kalev's stepfather. Kenaz was descended from Edom, a non-Israelite tribe. So here we have Kalev, who is closely tied to the Edomites. But yet, he's a member of the tribe of Judah, and he's asking not only for the land inheritance, but the first one in the promised land to get it. The point is, as I have mentioned time after time, there is no such thing as genealogical purity among the Israelites. And there wasn't even genealogical purity among the earliest Hebrews that go back to Abraham. Okay? And that is exactly as God intended it. The Lord told Abraham that any foreigner who wanted to join the Hebrews should be welcomed with the understanding that to join meant to worship only the God of Abraham. Later we find in the early development of the nation of Israel founded by Jacob that most of the people that he took with him as Israelites down to Egypt were actually foreigners that had, they had captured from Shechem. So Caleb is but another example of how race and genealogies matter little to nothing to the Lord. Right. But instead, it's trust in him and faithfulness to him that's always been the issues. It's that faith and trust that makes one part of God's people or not. Now, Caleb reminds Joshua that Moses promised to give him the land of his choice, particularly land that Caleb had personally scouted out. Well, apparently the mission Caleb had was to reconnoiter the area of Hebron. And so that is the general area he's asking to receive as his clan's land inheritance. Now we get an interesting and helpful piece of information in verse 10. It says that A, Kaleb was 40 years old when he went up with that group of 12 scouts into Canaan. And that that event occurred 45 years earlier, making Caleb 85 years old. Since Israel was out of Egypt for about two years when they arrived at Kadesh Barnea and organized that scouting party, this means that at the time of this meeting now between Caleb and Joshua, about seven years had passed since Israel had crossed over the Jordan River and attacked Jericho. So all these battles that we've been reading about in Joshua have thus far taken place over about a seven-year time span. We also find out that the Anakim, that race of giants, controlled the area of Hebron. So what we see happening here is that 85-year-old Kalev remains as bold and confident of victory now as he was 45 years ago and a much younger man. We don't read of anyone challenging Kalev's request for this particular place because the rest of Israel wanted nothing to do with fighting those Anakim. Now, in reality, Kalev asked for a whole lot more than what he wound up with. He wanted all the land that he set his foot upon in Canaan. 
But he got Hebron and the contiguous land. But Caleb also received a great honor. He was the first to receive his land inheritance inside the promised land. And of course, this was a reward for his steadfastness in standing with Moses and the Lord, facing down his brethren and taking a most unpopular position that Israel should ignore the strength of the enemy and proceed to attack Canaan. Also notice that it was the tribe of Judah, Caleb's tribe, who got the first piece of land in the promised land. Now let me explain something. We'll see the words in Joshua that the land was distributed according to the clans and the tribes. Now any tribal society would understand that statement perfectly. Just as different tribes were more and less populous and more and less powerful than others, so were the clans within the tribes that formed the tribes. Some clans, like Caleb's, had great pull and sway within the tribes, so they had much sway over the politics and the daily decisions that occurred within their tribe. A tribe really was only a collection of clans. Warfare within a tribe was warfare between clans. Now, Caleb getting first choice of land within the tribe of Judah meant his was undoubtedly the most powerful clan within the tribe of Judah. Yet, as choice as was the land that Caleb asked for, it was an unconquered land. Understand that the division of land at this point among the tribes, was to serve several purposes, among which was that the tribe who received a certain piece of territory had to finish conquering it. And then they had the task of maintaining control and dominance over that piece indefinitely. This chapter ends with the words, and the land had rest from war. Well, this indicates a pause in the action. But we should notice that at this point, only the smallest distribution of land now has taken place. Only one clan out of one tribe had by now received any allocation of property within the promised land. Even though the earlier verses spoke about Ephraim and Manasseh in the context of them not giving any of their territory to the Levites, except for some cities, this did not indicate a land distribution as of yet. What we're going to find out in the upcoming chapters is that in between Judah being given their land inheritance and the other tribes getting theirs, a lull occurred. This time of little recorded activity and a pause of distribution of the land came for a rather interesting reason. Joshua couldn't find any takers. The tribes fully understood that at the same time that they would be settling portions of their tribal land inheritance, which which is, of course, the good stuff, they had the responsibility as a tribe to drive out or kill the Canaanites who still held on to certain areas within their land inheritance. Not so good stuff. By now, Israel were nomads. 
Okay? This, this generation, this second generation of the Exodus had never lived in anything but tents. They had never lived in a city. They had never planted crops nor tended vineyards. They were herders that used up the pasture land and then moved on. Okay? They knew and were comfortable with the way of the Bedou, right? the Bedouin. Taking the land meant settling down. It meant restricting themselves to a relatively small area. It meant respecting boundaries and borders. It meant defending their land. It meant battling with neighbors. Nomads moved their flocks and herds away from trouble, not into it. Nomads were a non-confrontational people in general who didn't want the responsibility of villages and cities and caring for land and crops. The last thing that interested them was war or territorial battles. So in a few chapters, we're going to find Joshua reading the riot act to those Israelite tribes who were just blowing off occupying their gift of land from their God. It was during this lull in the land distribution that Israel moved their encampment from Gilgal, where they had been living since the day they crossed over Jordan, to Shiloh. Shiloh, Shiloh would become the new Israelite headquarters. And it would be by default, of course, where the tabernacle was erected. And all sanctuary services would be held. Shiloh would be the new center of worship and government for Israel for many decades. If you go to Shiloh today, you can find the actual area where the wilderness tabernacle stood. I and several of you in this room have been there. You can even find holes in the rocks where the posts were set to bear the weight of the massive curtains that surrounded that tabernacle courtyard. Next time we get together, we'll take up chapter 15 and watch as the land distribution effort continues.